Today's scripture reading is found in Galatians chapter 4. If you'd like to follow along, you can grab the Bible in front of your pew. It's the New King James Version, which I'll be reading from. This is Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not, mat- does not differ at all from a slave, so he is a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I like that God, in this passage, sends his son, who is heir of all things, to make us sons that we might be heirs with him. There's something about that in this season that speaks. And in light of the story I shared with you about my own past, the fact that we are grafted in, as Roman says, that we are adopted, has significance because in Roman law, A son who was adopted could never be sold as a slave or could never be mistreated in the way that a son who was natural born could. You see, if Christ were God's adopted son in the context of Roman law and this writing in the New Testament, he could have never sent him to die for us. Such an action would have been forbidden. It would have been unacceptable in Roman law. But as God, Jesus Christ could make the decision with his Father, with the Spirit, to come and make atonement for us and graft us in, adopt us as sons and daughters. And as such, then we are not subject to that mistreatment. He took what we deserved and gave us what he deserved, as you've heard said many times. Well, it's Christmas time, and I'm, as I say in my little notes there, I don't know how many of you read the bulletin, if ever, but I do write a little column lately in there called Pastor's Notes or Pastor's Journal or Thoughts from the Pastors, depending on on what it really is. And in there I note that uh, we're in the second day of Christmas, and there are 12, and I'm only used to one. How many of you kind of grew up like I did? One day of Christmas, tree goes in the fire because you bought it November 27, and it's turned a lovely shade of pale pale green brown and uh, you don't dare turn the lights on because even though they're low voltage you're just sure that the whole thing is going to go one day in your living room Um, because the dog keeps drinking the water that you put under the all of you have that experience okay (laughs) this season and and i'm I, i hope you hear from the front here that I have no interest in being rigid about these things. I just see them as rich opportunities to explore and grow in our vision a bit of what it means to celebrate. I don't, I don't have any need to be arbitrary about 12 days, but this, this lesson today is going to point us maybe to some of the treasures that lay hidden there. Turn to Genesis 15 and you're going to see kind of where I'm going with this. I think my eyes continue to get worse. I don't know. I can't uh, 
Anybody, anybody have that happen? I hope not. This is one of the many covenants of the Old Testament. It's one of the most interesting and one of the most important. I'm going to use some technical terms um, because it, it is, is one of, they're descriptive. And if you have an NIV study Bible, in fact, on page 19, there is a, a chart of the types of covenants and what they are. And this is what's called a royal grant covenant, and it is a king's grant of land or some other benefit to a loyal servant for faithful or exceptional service. The grant is normally considered perpetual and unconditional, but servants' heirs benefited from it only as they continue in their father's loyalty and service. There are a number of those that are there. So this is a royal grant. God as the ruler of all, the Lord of all, the owner of all, grants to Abraham an inheritance in two forms. One, that he will be a great nation of people. And this is a a man without a child at this point, advanced in age. And then secondarily, that he will receive land. And the land grant is not insignificant. The land grant goes from the rivers of, in other words, the Nile Delta probably, or the major river of Egypt, all the way up to the Euphrates. So it's a territory much larger then encompasses present Israel and even present Israel and Jordan. Uh, It it encompasses parts of modern-day Egypt and so forth. So a fairly substantial inheritance and territory here. And God has covenanted with Abraham in in ways mysterious to me and deep and that I don't want to even pretend to understand. Covenants were signified in ways that we would never do it today. Today we go to an attorney we draft on a piece of paper language that's considered hopefully ironclad. We sign in key places and initial in other key places on this contract. We have it sealed or notarized sometimes. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram Abram, and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the rivers of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Feel free to correct me on any of those pronunciations after the service. Several things happening here. One is a prophecy about the Exodus. There's going to be an enslavement, a period of 400 years after which you will gain great wealth and I will bring you out of that land. And on the other hand, the land that you're about to inherit, the people dwelling there have not yet filled the cup of wrath. Isn't that interesting? Their time has, for judgment has not yet come. There could have been in this 400-year period a time of turning for this people, the Amorites specifically. There could have been a time of turning. God is letting things play out. He says, I'm going to fulfill to you a promise. I'm going to fulfill it, but this is what's going to happen in the intervening time. This is how it's going to go. And we don't see God. Abraham does not see God. He sees a smoking pot and a light pass between the divided, the bifurcated carcass of the heifer 
and the goat and the ram and the dove on the one side and the pigeon on the other. The dove is a turtle dove. And the reason all of these animals are included is not to make the oath more sacred. It's to make it more inclusive. You see, not everybody can afford a heifer for slaughter. Not everybody can spare a sheep or a goat. But everybody can afford a turtle dove. It is the sacrificial gift of the poor. When we turn to Exodus, excuse me, Leviticus 14, we see more detail on this. Leviticus 14 gives descriptions of a cleansing process from infectious skin diseases. Very practical in lots of ways. The one who is about to be uh, examined by the priest shaves himself completely, including his eyebrows. That would get rid of any ticks, fleas, lice, etc. Could be a little itchy for a while, but I, I guess that's the price of cleansing. And he appears before the priest outside the camp and there are all sorts of terms. He's supposed to show up with three lambs. But it says in verse 21, If, however, he is poor and cannot afford these, he must take one male lamb as a guilt offering to be waived to make atonement for him, together with a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, a log of oil, and two turtle doves. Now it says doves in the NIV. But if you look at Young's literal translation and some of the others, it specifies turtle doves. Common bird in the area. Or two young pigeons. He can afford one, which he can afford one, and one for sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. In other words, if you didn't have resources, two turtle doves or two pigeons would suffice. We find Jesus born in the most humble of circumstances. He's born in a manger in Bethlehem. His parents are young. Well, his mother's young. His father, we don't know his age exactly, older to be sure. They've traveled to this place. Not people of tremendous means. And as we see Jesus presented at the temple, they bring with them birds because they have not the means. They are not wealthy people. And Jesus is presented with these doves. So on the second day of Christmas, my true love gives to me two turtle doves. Oh yes, and that partridge in a pear tree. There is a wealth in this season, in symbolism, in grace, in hope, in redemption. A couple more notes about Genesis that I want to make for you to think about. Not only do we have every economic level represented, but every conceivable type of sacrifice, sin offering, guilt offering, burnt offering. And in these, 
we do not see Abraham walking through these. Abraham does not enter the self-maledictory oath. Only God walks through the divided portions. And you say, so what? The significance of this is God is making the promise. God is granting the child and the inheritance. God is giving of the land and the inheritance. God is saying, even though I cannot lie, and even though I cannot die, I will walk through these pieces in a self-maledictory oath. If I fail, may it be done to me and more so to demonstrate to you my sincerity, my intent, my truth. And God passes in the night between these things that Abraham has sacrificed and set up and guarded through the day and declares the surety of what he's promised. And he doesn't say to Abraham, now get up, it's your turn. There are two sides to this now. You're going to have to do X, Y, Z. He doesn't do that. God walks through. And the Christ who has come walks that gauntlet. He's broken. His blood is shed. And we don't have to do that. And the God who reaches out then and promises then is the God who reaches out now and promises now. Christianity is a billion and a half to two billion people strong. It's not the fastest growing religion in the world anymore, but it's still the largest. Or among the largest. Islam, it's hard to say, is neck and neck and catching up. Many countries have headed that direction. But it is an amazing phenomena to see how great the Christian family is and yet how many people have yet to hear of the goodness of God in the context of our faith. So there's that reality. Christ has made his promise. God made his promise to Abraham and Christ has fulfilled it for us today. He makes the promise that he will make of us a great nation and that we have an inheritance. Only the inheritance we claim is not earth and soil here. We are spiritual Israel, a chosen nation, adopted sons and daughters grafted in. We're part of the tree, rooted in the old promises, but headed for a new destination. What happens here points forward to the inheritance that we've been promised. That Jesus comes again. That there's a new heaven and a new earth. And that those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb 
will be there. What I want you to take away today is the act and action of God who initiates, who grants, who carries out, who fulfills, who extends, who expands, and who ultimately claims, conquers and claims a world redeemed. Don't let the richness of this season escape you. In excelsis Deo. Oh Lord, we praise you this day. Thankful for the Christ who has come and the season of celebration that we enter surrounding it. Grateful for the salvation you have brought to all. So go with us into this week and into this new year. In Jesus' name, amen.